Hello, this is Toothy Toad. This is Dr. Walter Aka. And Dr. Kyle Dumpert. We have the pleasure of speaking with Greg Maravella today. Uh, Greg, as a, as a disclosure, Greg, uh, I've been working with him since before I bought my practice. So he's been with me since uh, before the purchase. He helped with my practice evaluation, helped me through the practice purchase, getting my whole team set up. And uh, now he continues to stay on, helps with all matters financial uh, with my practice. And he works with um, an accounting group, practice CFO, or a financial group, practice CFO, a certified public accountant and certified financial planner. He got his training through uh, his bachelor's at Harvard and his MBA at UCLA, and he's got over 20 years of experience in accounting and finance world. So, Greg, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. To be with you guys. The first question that I have, and it's a kind of broad question, it's just a matter of what do you think was the, you know, was the biggest mistakes dentists were making before this pandemic? And what's the biggest um, financial decision dentists are making now that we're in this pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's necessarily um reserved to dentists but i think you know what we try to advise our clients is to be prepared for emergency situations and by that i mean that you should have three to six months of personal spending reserved in cash and i'm talking about on the personal side my clients who are more relaxed like kyle are the ones who've heeded that advice and live below their means uh, most other, you know, the banks will lend you as much as you can possibly take, at least here in the States. But that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Because you can qualify for the million dollar house doesn't mean you should buy the million dollar house. The key things that you should be doing are, you know, having that emergency fund and then, you know, buying income producing assets. And specifically, as most dental practice owners are doing, that's, you know, when you have a degree, when you, have a, uh, a dental practice, that's an income-producing asset. And then as you get wealthier, you can buy into a 401k or a residential property or commercial property, et cetera. But there's a hierarchy of things that you need to do, and having that cash set aside, whether you're a dentist or not, is going to make you more comfortable doing these situations. But that's it's it's a really deliberate, intentional behavior to save money. So most people just put savings at the bottom of their monthly spending list. It should actually be at the top. You should, whatever you have left at the end of the month, you should have for fun, not what you have left at the end of the month is for saving. One of, one of my favorite books is uh, The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, being that dentists don't seem to want to heed the advice of that book, we seem to want to uh, spend money as fast as we make it. Uh, what, g going back to kind of before you started working with dentists, what, what made you want to start working with dentists as a, a population? You know, I think, cause I think there's a lot of value to be added there, right? So you guys on a daily basis work with people who don't have a lot of education about dental health. And you probably get some gra gratification from helping people. And it's the same for me, right? You guys didn't spend years learning about finances and learning how to boil it down. And I thought, you know, this is, it's an easy, it's, it, you guys are in the wonderful situation of having the means to have a more secure life if you could just harness it correctly. And, and I thought the marriage between, you know, being very, you guys being very well educated, um, and having the means to get ahead was a good place to apply my knowledge. You know, other places where, you know, there are other niches where you could go, but at least in dentistry, there are still the independent dentist and not everybody is corporate. Um, so there's the opportunity for you guys to have a little more latitude in making your own decisions about your own personal wealth. Okay. When it comes to, you mentioned um, income producing assets. Yes. Right. And that's usually associated with, at least with dentists, that's associated with, like you said, uh, having your own practice. But what about the associates out there, the p people that don't have their own practice? How do you then go from there? Right. You know, I guess associates, I mean, your associates already have one income producing asset, which is their education. Right. And that's something nobody can ever take away from them. 
So having invested whatever it is, 400,000 plus or minus in that degree and that education is an income producing asset in itself. For you guys, I guess if for associates, they just need to decide what their constitutional makeup is, what their stomach is for owning a business or being an employee. Not everybody is cut out to be a practice owner. Not everyone should be, right? Some people just like to clock in, clock out. They don't want to make personnel decisions. They don't want to make business decisions. They don't want to look at numbers. That's totally fine. And um, dental service organizations are here to help with that. And, uh, but there's a sacrifice, right? That your future is not completely your own. Now you work for somebody else. And I think what the big thing that's going to come out of this is there are going to be a lot of white flags waving from independent dental practice owners who want to get out of ownership. Um, and they're going to sell the DSOs for this very reason. They don't want to deal with all, all the economic uncertainty. But for your, you know, the associates just getting started out who do want to own a business, there's a reason why DSOs want to own or buy into businesses because there's profit there, right? They couldn't, and, and private equity firms, which are the, the money guys that back up DSOs, wouldn't get into this business if they didn't see that profit motive there. So what they're seeing and what, what people who have a business mind should kind of keep in mind is if you want to own it outright and not be part of a DSO, there's, there's good money to be made. And there's lots of tax breaks that you're going to get that as a dental practice owner that you will absolutely not get as a W-2 employee for a Heartland or a Pacific Dental Services or somebody like that. So there's, you have a lot more flexibility and you're keeping more of the profits yourself. Just like somebody who's an employee, right? There's a reason why you're an employee is because the, the, the company is keeping a percentage of your profits. When you work for a DSO, the same thing is happening. They're keeping a percentage of your production. When you own a business, it's all yours. But there's a trade-off. You have to work for it. With the the whole COVID-19 situation that has developed, uh, what percentage of dentists do you think are going to make it through this versus the ones that are going to have to declare bankruptcy and close their doors? You know, I think a lot of them are going to make it through you know, because the money is just sloshing around there. If they put any effort into applying for the EIDL or the PPP loan, uh, and they are successful in getting those, they should be fine. I mean, and in all honesty, you really shouldn't have, if you're shut down, you shouldn't have that much in expense right now anyway, right? Maybe your rent, you should have deferred all of your loan payments, student loans, building loan, practice purchase loan, SEREC loan, all that stuff should be deferred. All your employees should be getting paid by the state right now in unemployment. You really shouldn't have that much cash going out. Now, there are plenty of practices who have bank accounts in the red, which is not good. Those guys are going to suffer, and they're going to be waving the, the white flag. But I think most of them will make it, at least from a cash perspective, but from a morale perspective, I think you'll see five to ten percent just be like, the hassle's not worth it. Get me a DSO buyer. Let me ask a question about um, the PPP. Yeah. I heard um, I was listening to a podcast, and, and somebody had mentioned that you know, whenever you apply for it, you might want to apply for both uh, with a with a big company like a big bank like a Wells Fargo, for example. And right. then a small community bank at the same time. Your chances of actually getting it might be an inc increased. I mean, you won't get two loans, but you'll be able to pick which one. Is right. that true? Yeah, no. Um, we have a little bit of data now. So our firm has about 250 clients across the U.S. So we now have some anecdotal data about who's been – we didn't know in the beginning who'd be successful. But if you read the news, you'll notice that Wells Fargo – Bank of America, Chase, and U.S. Bank are all part of a federal class action lawsuit because they are accused of shuffling the deck. What that means is they didn't do first come, first serve like the program was supposed to be, but their best clients, including like millionaire properties in Florida, were at the top of the list to get the PPP funds. So if I were a betting person, I would say your big banks are probably, at least they were, and they probably still will be in part two. 
you're least likely to fund you. In fact, I don't know of all of our 250 clients, a single one who's gotten funded by any of those four banks. But the ones that I have had success from that people have applied to is just like you said, well, um, your local community bank and pick one that has experience in doing SBA loans. They know the process, they know the people, they know the format. Other ones that have had success are um, Bank of the Internet, um, PayPal's lending arm, which is called LoanBuilder.com. And there's also a clearinghouse. Um, there's a couple of them. The one that we found had more luck is called Lendio, L-E-N-D-I-O.com. And what they do is they shop out your application to different institutions. So you're not going direct. You're going through a, a clearinghouse, so to speak. The other one is called Cabbage with a K. That one we haven't seen as much success and the website is kind of tough to use, but those, those are the alternatives. So the question that I get asked a lot are, is should you apply to multiple places? And I look at the pros and cons. So the cons are extra work and headache, right? You might have multiple pulls on your credit score, which hurts your credit score. Um, but the pros are, you have multiple horses in the race. We think that there's only one slot in the SBA queue per tax ID number. Your company should have a tax ID number. The question is, how fast do you reserve your slot in the SBA line? We don't know which of the lenders is the fastest to get applications sent over to the SBA. I'm pretty sure it's not the big banks, but I can't bank on it. So it, the only the, the main pro about applying with multiple banks is you're at least searching out the fastest horse to get yourself into that SBA one. Have you heard from any of the clients uh, that if you didn't apply for that first round of money that became available uh, because it ran out so fast, have any of those banks just been feeding off that existing pool of applications and that second round of money that got approved is already used up and it's really not worth applying for it at this point? I have not heard that. I've heard that the banks, if you didn't make the first cut. So I'll give you some anecdotal numbers just to tell you what I've been seeing. I would say a good, just by the difference. So of EIDL, there's two components. There's the grant, I would say about 40% of our clients have gotten the grant. And that comes out to about $1,000 a head. If you had six employees, that's 6000 bucks. That's kind of tax-free money. Um, I would say maybe 15% have gotten the EIDL loan. That has to be paid. Then on the PPP, that's the one that you're talking about, Kyle. That has That is the forgivable loan, is the preferable one. I would say maybe... 15% again of our clients have gotten that. I assume the other 85% who didn't qualify remain in line. And so whether that uses up what's rep, but if you think about it mathematically, think about this. The first PPP was 349 billion. The new PPP is less than that at 310. So 15% of people used up an amount that's more than the second part. It's going to go quickly. You better apply tomorrow is my point. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> let me let me ask this this question. I've been kind of seeing other dentists talk about this and it's been floating around uh, is the whole unemployment situation. Right. So you mm -hmm. get to PPP and you're excited. You, you, you're the 15 percent. You did well. Right. You had someone like yourself to kind of guide them through and, to get, and you got it. But then you go and you talk to your, uh, you know, your employees and they're kind of upset because they're actually making more money, <laughs> you know, um, on unemployment than actually yeah. you, that you would be paying them. So now yeah. this loan might possibly, I mean, this loan, instead of becoming a grant, becomes a loan and you have to pay it back. So how do you kind of help maneuver people through this? Yeah. And I actually did a, a kind of a, a write up or a pointer for the, for our clients. And maybe I'll give out the, the website to you guys so you, the folks on this call can see it about how to think about it. So here is my approach to it is this loan, this PPP money, if you're lucky enough to get it, is going to be going out one way or the other, right? It's either going to be going back to the bank because you couldn't use it because your people stayed on unemployment or it's going to go into their pocketbook. 
it's not really going to stay with you, except to the extent that you pay yourself through the PPP funds, and that's for gambling. So who cares if they sit at home, you know, and collect unemployment, or you send the money back to the bank? Therefore, I think what the measuring stick should be is, do you have real work for them to do? If you have real work for them to do, and the state permits it, then they should go back to work, right? And they get paid. If, in even in that circumstance, because this $600 kicker that the the federal government is tacking on regular employment, which basically, for most people, gets them up to 25 bucks an hour, and it's more than a lot of employees make, it makes them want to stay at home, you know, then that's their issue. But they need to weigh in their mind is, you know, do you want to come back to a job that's going to last for a long time or stay on employment and come into a 10% unemployment economy in three months looking for a job? Your choice. Because it's not going to be easy to find a job um, come August when everybody rolls off of the, the high employment and, and 10% of your colleagues are also looking. The employers are going to value the people who are loyal. Well Do said. you think these these loans are designed, uh, or the way these loans are designed, that they're actually going to help dental offices to stay busy? If it's like the PPP is only meant to really cover that payroll expense to keep people working or keep them off unemployment, uh, whether they're working or not. Do you, is this really designed to help the business, or is it more designed to to help the employee? I think the lodge, it was designed to keep the economy going. And the problem with the PPP loan, and exactly to your point, Walt, is like, now we're in this weird spot where, take Pennsylvania, for example, where theoretically, this whole eight-week period of forgiveness measurement could go by and office is still mandated to be closed, right? So the problem is that when the law was designed, it was designed with the intent that everything would already be open. Because people were thinking about this six weeks ago. This extended shutdown um, only came, you know, about as time progressed. So now we're in this weird limbo. And I think it was just to encourage employers to bring people back at the time that it was conceived. Now we're in this weird limbo time where the government is rewarding you for paying people and the government is mandating you to shut down (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a perfect joseph heller catch 22 um and that was the intent uh i think it'll help a lot of people and in a way if you're smart about it and depending on how your local bank here's the key by by the way i think to anybody who gets ppp gets forgiveness and kyle i've told you this get as soon as you get that money Ask your bank, and I guarantee none of them are prepared. I want to know. I want to see your application for forgiveness, right? Because just like there was a lot of latitude in the way the SBA interpreted the law and the Treasury Department, and they were all putting out these FAQs and reinterpreting things, I think, too, the way forgiveness is interpreted will depend bank by I don't think the banks want to keep these loans. They have 1% interest on them. They don't want these loans. They want to get rid of them. But they're still going to have some sort of rules that the little box checkers have to, to check. I want to see what the format of that loan is. For example, are they going to look at the payroll cost in aggregate? Meaning, if I had $100,000 payroll cost before, am I going to have $100,000 now? Boom, you get the full forgiveness. Or they're going to look employee by employee. I have four employees who were here last year, and they're all gone this year, so you get 0% forgiveness here. I want to see their application to see how they're going to go about it. Because I think there's some real opportunities, especially for the folks who have pension plans, because you can prepay your, um, if you have profit sharing portion of 401k or um, safe harbor match, you can make those payments during the eight week period, depending on how the bank is going to look at it and have that count towards forgiveness, which is awesome. Think about having your a lot of your profit sharing 401k funded by the government, which is a beautiful win, depending on how that forgiveness application is, um, because your employees get to kick back at home because the, you know, and get more than they would being at the office. Um, and then you still get the full forgiveness and, and the, the government just funded your, your profit sharing. So it really is going to hinge on on how the banks interpret things. 
Speaking personally, I, I've contacted my bank. They don't have that forgiveness application available and they, they don't think they're going to have it available for the next several weeks. Uh, any of those other banks that you mentioned that other clients have uh, gotten anything through? Do any banks seem to have a forgiveness application yet? Not one. Bank, banks are, um, I'm going to try to be nice, but they're not. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we're, we're never nice on here, so you can be completely honest. <laughs> they're not the, the most uh, mathematical people um, and analytical people or flexible people. They get a little sheet that one person at the bank does. And that's the box they have to check off. And sometimes just for fun, there's, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it's just fun and games for the bank to ask you for the same thing like three or four times. I think they must have a contest internally to see how many times they can ask you for the same stuff. <laughs> but they will not be prepared. And this is the problem Like in, in me advising exactly what to do. Um, because I don't know how, and, and every, but just like every bank had a different application for PPP slightly, they're going to have this, a different forecast or forgiveness application as well. Okay. Um, well, I kind of want to lighten the mood a little bit, I guess. Let's start <laughs> off with, because <laughs> I mean, honestly, this can be get depressing, but let's start off overall. Financial advisor. Why would somebody, anybody, and who would also need your services? Let's start that way. It felt like we just dove right into just seriousness. So let's just start with that. No, that's fine. And this is, I mean, this is what's on people's minds and I'm happy to answer it. In fact, I'm answering it about 12 hours a day and kind of finding it out a little bit along the way as, as we get smarter. Um, but our firm is really designed for people who want to be coached a little bit, not in the Tony Robbins sense, um, but in the sense that uh, they know that they want to get ahead. For example, you probably have a spectrum of clients, right? Who, you know, like, they're just like, I'm just going to come and see you when I need a tooth pulled and then leave, don't call me, you know, I'll never <laughs> see you again. Then there's other people who are like, you know what? Dental health matters to me. Tell me what I need to do. And they're going to actually go off and do some of that stuff. And it's a collaborative, symbiotic relationship between the advice that you offer and the patient actually acting on it. And that's what we're looking for. We're there for the private practice and the private owner who has a business mind and who wants to get ahead. We're not there for people who are empire builders. So one of the biggest things that um, that is big right now is DSO building, right? And it's probably perfectly legitimate. And you'll meet a lot of people. You're going to be, all of you guys are going to be hearing a lot from DSO pitchers in the, in the coming months. Um, and some of them, what they're doing is they're, they've got a funnel, right? And what's happened is you have the private equity guys with the big money sitting up at the top. These guys need high returns. And what they're trying to do is aggregate all these smaller offices into a McDonald's-like kind of replicated network across a certain area. Um, some do it de novo, like PDS. Others do it through acquisition. You know, that's fine. But we're looking for the folks who want to stay independent, you know, and who, who run, run their own business. Um, and... You'll also see in those DSO, you're going to see some local groups like, you know, Joe, the dentist, who's like, you know what? I quit dentistry and I bought five practices and everything's been great and I'm making money. I've never seen one that makes a lot of money. The way that they end up making money is they get acquired, right? That's where they get their payday. And then what happens is the, the DSOs who have more sophistication or resources put, you know, put the hammer down and they're like, this is the way payroll's going to run. This is the way this is going to run. This is how you're going to do your marketing. And, you know, then you're locked in. Um, but so we're there to really help the independent dentist who, you know, wants to get ahead. I, I'm going to jump back to uh, the virus a little bit with, <laughs> since you brought up DSOs. He's obsessed uh, with the virus, by the way. <laughs> I, no, I, 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 I'm just, I, I, I've heard, you know, with these DSOs, yeah. you have a third of them that are killing it, making money. You have a third of them are, that are just breaking even, treading water. And then you have a third of it that is, you know, being subsidized by the top third. And that's really how their um, you know, business model is. Yes. And uh, so I, I've been curious how many of these DSOs are going to start unloading, trying to unload their bottom third practices, just closing them down and 
really maybe consolidating um, so they can stay profitable during this time? Yeah, I think some will. The small ones, like you're talking about, Kyle. So the guy or lady who has six offices, there's going to be one or two that's the good ones. And then the four neglected stepchildren that are that are not doing as well. And brokers, everybody loves this stuff. You know, the brokers love it. The attorneys love it. Anybody who benefits from churn is going to love people buying extra offices because these things spin a lot. Um, so... I, I do see that happen, and that's that's happened even before the virus is, you know, these these practices turning over. And as a, a follow up for fourth year dental students that are hopefully getting ready to graduate right now, do you think this is a good time for them to be coming into a dental market because they could probably pick up some deals on some practices that are, that are trying to get unloaded? Absolutely, and there's going to be and. Oftentimes, like you and Kyle, you and I have talked about, the, the cheapest area to buy a practice in, just like it is to buy real estate in for the high cash flow, is the rural areas, right? And the reason for that is because, for example, let's take Pennsylvania, right? There's a there's not a lot of folks being trained at Pennsylvania dental schools who a are going to remain in the state and b want to move to rural areas. Right. So there's a, this real mismatch of supply and demand out there. So I think that even before this crisis and then more so now, the prices in the rural areas are going to be really good. So if you or you and your spouse are good with moving to a rural area, that is the best place to make money. You know, you know, I have a lot of clients who live in coastal California. Um, and they are my most strapped clients, right? Because they have to pay a million dollars for a three bedroom house and the public schools aren't good. So they have to pay 40,000 a year for the kids to go to school, private school. The taxes are much higher. Um, so that, that's your best bet. Um, in terms, but even regardless of the geography, they're just going to be some dentist waving the white flag, like I'm over it. You know, they were right on the cusp already of, you know, selling or whatever, and they're just going to bail. Yeah. And so they're going to be more flexible in the price. And I think you're going to see the same too in real estate. You're going to, right now, the supply and demand curves have been equalizing, right? The supply got pulled off the market and the, the demand also dropped. So the prices haven't dropped a lot in real estate, but you're going to start seeing there's going to be a crack. Right. Eventually somebody needs to sell because they have to move or they can't pay their mortgage. And that one block, that one house in the block is, is going to drop their price dramatically just to get rid of it. And the others have to start following suit. And I think you're going to see that happening with dental practice. So this is probably a good time to pick up a dental practice, not this month, but probably in the next 12 months. Well, okay. Well, then let's talk about evaluation, right? Uh, if yep. you looked into the stock market and you saw come March, like everything was crashing, right? You know, airlines, to, you know, um, their stock prices went from like 80s, 90s to like 20s and 15s in the teens, right? And people mm -hmm. were like, oh, this is the best time to pick it up. But this is based on evaluation of last year, not this right. year, right? right? So how do you evaluate a, pro a practice that hasn't been going for a few months? Well, two that months now. That is a wonderful question. The beautiful thing is there are the same number of teeth out there before COVID-19 <laughs> as there are now, if not more, because the plan adds 220,000 people a day net. So there's more teeth. The money may not be out there. So I think it's just going to be a matter of time. I think the biggest thing, I think what you need to look at is case by case, right? So a practice that does like fillings, and your kind of your basics is going to be the strongest. You're just like on your high end, your elective stuff. That's going to be those. Those are going to be your discretionary things. Those are going to suffer first, right? You know, I was going to do the full mouth and ears. Now I don't have the money for it, and I just need to survive. Those are going to be the first to go. So I think you need to look at the makeup of what the practice is doing to value it. Um, and the the truth is, I think. You know, one thing is I think that the revenue will bounce back, but you probably should put some discount factor in there. And I wouldn't necessarily pounce on it or make an offer until a couple months after the practice is reopened, just so you get a little bit of taste to see what it's going to be looking like afterwards. I don't think there's going to be a lot of competition from buyers 
you know, in the next few months. So then good news for fourth years. I mean, they, they, I think they've been hearing a lot of bad news, uh, recently with, uh, limited job market. And, uh, so I, I, on the positive side, I, I did think if you were looking to buy a practice that now is really the, the best time for it, same as putting investments in 401k or stock market or something, you're getting, getting a deal on it potentially getting a deal on real estate here pretty soon. And at the end of the day, it really comes down. It's, you know, you can get a good or bad deal. And like I, for example, in the past 10 years, this has been a bull market for most everyone, right? But there's still been dental practices not doing well, but there've been other dental practices doing gangbusters, right? What's the difference? Difference is, yeah, partially geography, partially their procedure mix, but ultimately it comes down to the owner. That's, you know, what is your constitution? Are you a business person? Are you a leader? Or are you just a clinician? You have to decide that for yourself. There's no harm in being just a clinician. You have to do that self-survey. Do I, am I willing to do what it takes for this extra economic gain, you know, and, and do the business stuff? Because you can be a winner in, in, you know, in probably most circumstances. Okay. A question. Um, so this is, I guess, a personal question. Um, but, you know, as a periodontist, my, um, my most productive, uh, procedures are implants. Yeah. Right. And most mm-hmm. people would think these are elective. If you talk to an insurance company, these are elective. These are something that really isn't necessary. Right. And that right. goes with like ortho. And so I'm asking as especially as, as a bunch of specialists are coming in here, do you feel like our, ramp up is going to be a lot slower than a general dentist that can do the, you know, the fill-ins and stuff like that, that most insurance will cover. Yeah. I guess it's going to depend on how, you know, what the ratio is of out of pocket to how much insurance covers, right? If somebody's completely out of pocket and coming to see you, you know, they, they may put that off, but if insurance is covering 90% of this particular implant, they, they may do it. And it's also going to, depend on whether they've kept their job or not. You know, I think unemployment's going to, you know, right now it's probably around, you know, uh, the figures are now probably 15%. I think it'll stay around 10% through at least the end of this year, if maybe not into next year. So with that goes insurance loss. Um, and that's going to dictate, you know, a lot. So it's going to depend on what your mixture of insurance is. If you're a fee for service practice, you're probably going to hurt a little bit more, but Honestly, it's going to be, it's, it's a mix because even fee for service practices, people go based off emotion. And usually the people who do that have pretty good means anyway, but I would still, if I were going to be a betting person, I, I would think all practices probably have an equal exposure for different reasons, right? The people, the, the low end pra- practices who maybe see HMOs or whatever, those people are exceptionally price sensitive. So if, if they have, you know, any loss of insurance, they're gone. Right. Pay for service were maybe not as sensitive, but still even a one or two, you know, percent of those going away is going to be a big impact. So I think anybody can probably be hurt by that. Yeah. I think everybody will feel something. Okay. So uh, another question. Um, when it comes to new grads, right? Uh, there are a lot of things that we are always told to get, right? We t- we're always told to get, Hey, make sure you get disability insurance. Yes. Make sure you get, uh, some kind of life insurance. Yes. Right. And, 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 you know, it's one of those things I feel like we're just kind of robots. We just go, okay, disability, check. Let's go ahead and get right. that. Life insurance, check. But we don't really know what's good and what's bad, right? We depend on somebody like yourself or, you know, other people that just come and say, oh, yeah, let's go. Let me sign you up for this, this, and this. What do you tell new grads on how to really evaluate good disability, good, um, un, you know, uh, health, um, what's it called? Life insurance. Life insurance do you yeah. want term? Do you want whole life? You know? Like all this stuff is kind of complicated, but people always dumb it down whenever you're graduating. Cause I, I'll speak for myself. That's what happened. You know, people were like, Oh, I just signed up for this. I'm like, all right, I guess I need it. Cool. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really great question. Disability insurance is very important, right? There's so many things that can go wrong with a dentist's body that basically nullify or neutralize their career, their hands, their eyes, their neck, you know, their back. All of these things have to be working in synchrony, and just one thing can kind of um, put them out of commission. Disability is really critical. 
picking the right provider, that is not easy. You know, I think the only way to do it is to talk to as many people as you can, particularly if you can come across, you know, if you're, if you're interning or doing a residency with somebody, talk to people who gotten disability, right? And see which companies work for them, which ones screwed them over, what they would have done differently, read online, that kind of disability is the number one insurance that I would get. It is not cheap either, but it's really critical. Uh, life insurance is a different story. I would only get life insurance if you have people who are economically depending on you, right? If you are a single person and your mom and dad are set, you know, you have no spouse. In my opinion, you don't need life insurance, right? If you have kids or a spouse, but basically what life insurance is, it's income replacement for the future, right? When you're 32 years old, you have a lot of future income you need to replace. So you should have a fairly high life insurance policy. And that should, as you gain more wealth and get closer to retirement and have fewer people depending on you, go down, right? And sooner or later, you're going to be too old to insure anyway because you're too much of a risk. Um, so that's kind of my advice on life insurance. Now, let's talk about term versus whole life insurance. Now, we sell life insurance and disability as well. Um, the best premiums or the best insurance commissions that insurance person can make is whole life insurance. But we don't sell it and on kind of ethical grounds. So a lot of people try to get new dentists to sign up for investing $3,000 a month, right? $36,000 a year. Their first year commission is 70% of what you spend in that first year. 70. Wow. <laughs> I, wish wow. Pe- I wish people could see both uh, Kyle and I's <laughs> eyes when you said that. Like, I was like, what? So if you see people chasing you down the hall, asking you about whole life and going to the Saturday seminar, that's what they're thinking about. Personally, and it's, it's just a, it locks your cash in. And yes, you do build cash value, but the way, again, it's not really much different than DSOs. The reason DSOs are in it is because they're skimming some of the profits for themselves. You know, it's totally legal. And the same is true with whole life. How are they making their money? Well, what they're doing is they're investing your money in the stock market. And what they're doing, and this, there is a place for whole life. I won't get into it today. If you're super rich, like if you have a net worth of over $5 million, then I think there's probably a place for it as a diversification move, but for most people, it's not. So what they're doing is investing your money in the stock market, and they're promising you that the you're never going to make less than this, but at the same time, what they're not telling you is you're never going to make more than the top amount. They're basically selling you a bond. Bonds are like a, a, it's like a mortgage with a fixed interest rate. Bond gives you the, the holder a fixed return, and that's what they're giving you when you're building up this cash value. Um, but it's just a big cash commitment. And then what, what, you know, one of the stats that I know is that in the first few years, six out of seven people cancel or surrender their whole life policies because the cash drain gets to be too much. So you end up getting less than what you put in because if you read the fine print and you look at the spreadsheet, you'll see that you don't get full cash value until about five to seven years into the policy. So if you exit early, you surrender some of what you put in. And a lot of people do that. And that's why another reason why they don't pay big commissions. So the better option is to do the term life, right? And you can you start big when at a bigger amount when you need it. And it's cheaper because you're younger. And then scale it down or ladder it. You can do like a 20 and 30 year policy when you're younger. So it ladders down the amount. Um, and then do your traditional investments like 401k or real estate, something like that. But whole life isn't something that we we believe in. But it's it's well advertised and and highly sold. Wow, you just made my day because I have this argument a lot with a lot of my friends because they consider it to be a defensive play, and mm-hmm. I put that in quotations because I think they're idiots. But I don't want to be mean on the podcast, you know. What I mean, yeah. because I've never really <laughs> never understood that. Like, you get a lower return if you really kind of like average it out over the year, but yet it's a defensive play because they're guaranteeing you a certain amount. But like you said. Right. I mean, go into that, please. I just want to I want to hear from an expert, because when I say it, I'm a jerk. But whenever whenever somebody who is well versed says like yourself says it, then maybe, you know, they might listen. Well, they may still have a point. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, no, no. They ha- let's let's get past that part. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, it, it, I mean, think about it. at the end of the day, if somebody is selling something, ask what they're getting out of it. Just follow the money, right? It's the same thing like with you, you, you know, your younger docs probably haven't heard about this, but there's another product that insurance companies sell called annuities. And it's really not much different. And what they do is they take a pile of money or you can build up a pile of money. And what they do is guarantee you a fixed payment, almost a pension. You almost create self-create a pension for yourself. Um, and they guarantee you like a 3% return. Well, how are they making money? Well, they know that the stock market and their other investments over time guarantee them probably a 7% return. So they're keeping that gravy. And what I would say, it's if there's some people, if you're exceptionally risk averse and you can't stomach, even at age 35, a single year of the stock market going negative, then maybe you need something like that. Um, and I've seen uh, one or two people like that. I saw we had one client who liquidated his 401k, paying 12.5% penalties to get out of it, 45% taxes just to pay down his student loans, which had 4% interest. My God. <laughs> yeah. So there's some people whose constitution, again, that's this is what made him happy, you know. And at the end of the day, I don't stop people from doing what makes them happy. And there are some people who are super risk averse. Um, but the truth is, if you have a good advisor who's managing your 401k, at age 65, you shouldn't be 90% stocks and 10% bonds. You know, so just a quick education for stocks and bonds. Think about like a house, right? When you buy a house, it's an asset. And you buy it, that's one half of the balance sheet. The other half of the balance sheet is what you bought it with, right? Part of it is debt which we call a mortgage, which in French is like a debt till you die, which is mort. Um, and then equity, which is the money down, right? That Now, if you were to default, you would lose your money, but the bank would be the first to get paid. And the same is true in the stock and bond market, right? Bonds are more secure. They have a fixed rate of interest that gets paid. Um, and so they have less volatility in their prices, right? But with more risk comes more reward, right? Just like a business owner, right? If your business is better, you have unlimited potential to benefit from the equity or profits of your business. So that's the benefit of that. So in terms of the mixture of what you should have in terms of stocks and bonds, you should have way more stocks, which are more volatile, but have higher return over the long term when you're younger, because they will go way up and way down. And as you're older, you have more bonds, which are more guaranteed and way less volatile. So you're not stressing out and you have more predictability. But even a lot of folks like like my clients who are 65 years old, they're freaking out like, oh, my gosh, Greg, you know, I lost 12 percent in the market. It's like, well, are you going to use all of that money tomorrow? No, you're going to be, you know, probably live another 20 years. Right. So you do need less volatility, but you don't need none. So you just need, and it's quite easy. Really, there's no, like you, I think, well, you were talking about like maybe timing the market or whatever. We don't time the market. Investing nowadays, you know, can be pretty darn boring. And what most people should be close to and what we try to mimic are target date funds. And we do a mixture of just, you know, what it, all I'm just talking about is higher equities or stocks when you're younger and fewer as you're older. Fewer bonds as you're younger, more as you're older to reduce volatility. Okay. I want to ask another question. I love this stuff. Um, when it comes to uh, financial advisors, right, mm -hmm. we, we talk about fees. Do you have any advice on how to choose a good financial advisor? I mean, someone like yourself, I'm, I'm honestly very, I'm blown away because when you said you don't sell whole life, I just automatically assumed you're just a good guy because yeah. that's <laughs> literally what 90% people, I mean, that's how they make their money, right? From what I've right. read. So how do you pick a good financial advisor? Right. Um, my advice is word of mouth. Talk to people who've had good experiences with people. And I, I probably hurt some people's feelings by saying this, but you know what I found? And this, there's some parallel to dental practice. I found that a lot of the best dental practices do, you know, special circumstances out. If you're a startup, this is different, but a lot of the be best established dental practices do virtually no advertising. And why do they have to do virtually no advertising is because they're getting a ton of free advertising from happy patients. And that's what practice CFO does. We don't really do advertising. We just do educational things. If people kind of hear a philosophy that they like or they think they can get an advantage from 
you know, our education and want to work with us. That's great. Well, was there anything that you wanted to cover with us that we weren't smart enough to ask you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, one one thing you've mentioned a book, The Millionaire Next Door, Kyle. Another book that I really like is called The White Coat Investor. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you already heard about it. Um, that's a great one. It's actually by an MD. He went through the military, so had a lot of his tuition picked up there. But you know, he gives a lot. Of, some of the stuff that he, you know, he, he contradicts me, but I'm I don't have any problem recommending him because. I think a good theater of ideas is healthy. You know, like for example, like he'll argue for fixed fees on certain things, whereas we'll argue for a percentage or whatever. But overall, I think his principles are great. And just a little bit of digging into this stuff can make you so much smarter. The other one that, you know, I don't mean to insult the book, but it's really on a repetitive level, but the philosophy is one that I've really taken to heart, um, which is, and I'm sure most people have heard of this, but it's Kiyosaki's book, um, Rich, Rich, Dad, uh, Rich Dad. Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and for those who are not familiar with it, you know, to put it in a nutshell, there's four quadrants of how you can earn income, right? There's the active and the passive and the, the company, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you know, the way he thinks about the world, I think has really influenced me. So for example, let's take your own home, right? Everybody talks about Ah, I can't stand paying rent. I'm going to get into a house so I don't have to pay rent anymore. I'm going to build some value. Okay, great. Let's say you stay in the house for 10 years and you build up a ton of equity. That's great. Now what are you going to do with it? Well, it's, well, I'll just sell it. And then what are you going to do? Well, I'll just buy another house. <laughs> so it never turns into usable income. You're just parlaying this. The value of your house went up while the value of all the surrounding houses also went up. So you're just trading, right? So it doesn't, the, the best assets are ones that other people generate income for you from and, or for yourself, which is an education or a business. Yeah. Those are, those are probably some things. The other thing that I'll probably talk about to your point, Kyle, is, you know, what people should be doing you know, on PPP. And I think we kind of touched on this. Um, how many banks should you apply to? I think we talked about that. I would pick a couple smaller ones. Um, you know, uh, it's fine if you go with B of A and Wells Fargo and those guys, but I really wouldn't hold your breath. Um, I would only put your folks back on payroll if you have real work for them to do. Another thing people, a lot of folks ask me, is like, Hey, just, you know, I got some work for them to do, but I'm just not going to pay them. Maybe I'll just Put, you know, pay, write them a check. If you want to get um, in front of the labor board and pay $25,000 to an attorney, when you terminate that employee because they remembered that that was illegal, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's leave on this note. Uh, so we always ask everybody this question. What do you, where do you see dentistry going now that we're kind of in this, you know, uh, pandemic? How do you see yeah. dentistry in the future? And and what do you think that dentists could learn from somebody like yourself so that it can kind of coast through this? I, I mean, I, when I use the word coast, I mean as, as as simply as possible, go through this without losing their hair or life or anything crazy like that. How do you, you know, kind of coach people through this whole process? Yeah, I think you need to put on the hat of the CEO, right? This, and the one that I always kind of think about is Mark Zuckerberg. He started as a programmer. He knows enough programming and details to be dangerous. He knows what's possible, right? But he's gotten to the point where he outsources or delegates a lot of it. But he's probably still involved. So that's my advice, whether it's during this pandemic or you know even before or after it, is don't you don't need to be an expert in insurance. You don't need to be an expert in the scripting or whatever it is. But you do need to have enough knowledge to be dangerous. Don't shy away from every part of your business. Be the undercover boss, you know, but visible so that you know things. Put some controls in place so that you're involved. Um, There's this thing in physics that's called the observer effect, and you can actually look it up, where protons act differently if they're being observed. And I think that employees act differently if they know they're being observed. So you put simple controls in place. 
For example, if you have them print out the day sheet and reconcile it to the bank deposits every day, you may not look at it every day, but they know that they're being watched and the behavior may change. You know, they may be a little bit more circumspect about uh, how they're recording things. And it's not that they, that you don't trust them. It's just the Russian proverb, trust but verify. How, how can people get a hold of you if they have any questions or if they want to learn about uh, kind of what services that you and your company has to offer for them sure. if they were interested in signing up? Yep. So a lot of folks, like we've done webinars, and they'll want to ask me questions that are one-offs about PPP or whatever. Um, my recommendation for those is you're paying your CPA for that. That person should be highly educated about that stuff and should be working on the weekends to respond to you and at all hours to help you get this done. If you're, if they're not, you need to think about that. Um, so I probably won't, like if people have specific questions, like, great, you know, what about Wells Fargo, this, that, or I'm, I may not respond specifically to those questions, but they want to talk about our services because I have to reserve my time, my existing clients. Sure. Four dozen clients. And hold them tomorrow, for example, are going to be calling me with round two of PPP. Mm. Um, well, not all of them, 85%. Um, <laughs> so, but if they're interested in our services, they can just email me. Uh, check out our website. It's practice CFO, which stands for chief financial officer. It kind of goes with the theme that you're the CEO of your business. We're the chief financial officer. So practice CFO.com or you can email me directly at Greg M. G-R-E-G-M at practicecfo.com. Well, thank you so much for, I know you've been yeah, extremely you. busy recently. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and answering some questions for us and uh, spending some time with us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure, guys. Yeah, thank you. Oh, man, that's awesome. Thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at realdentist with an S at gmail.com. That's real dentist, R-E-A-L, dentist with an S, at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that, our professional opinions. The final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.